CEE Central Europe Explained An IDM podcast series powered by Erste Group Episode 21 European Integration in Times of a Global Pandemic Institutional challenges in the European Union have been exacerbated by the pandemic at the same time that the EU enlargement has been put aside. The Recovery Fund Next Generation EU, agreed in July 2020 by the European Council, brought hope of further integration and collaboration. But will we observe institutional changes and a shift in power relations towards Central and Southeastern Europe? How could Brexit lead to EU institutional recovery and reform? Learning from history, IDM Managing Director Sebastian Schaeffer is today welcoming the Austrian historian and university professor Dr. Michael Geller. Formerly head of the Institute for Modern and Contemporary History Research in Vienna, the European Commission awarded him the position of Jean Monnet Chair for European History, Professor for Contemporary German and European History, Dr. Keller is the head of the Institute for History at the University of Hildesheim in Germany. Yeah, today with us is uh, Professor Michael Gela. Thank you very much for joining us. Yes, thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here at the Institute for the Danube Region and Central Europe. It's a pleasure to be able to talk with you about a very important topic we want to focus in this episode as a start on some sort of post-COVID recovery and look at the challenges that the pandemic has brought on European integration. In our last episode, we have talked about the new multi-annual financial framework. We have talked about the biggest addition to this budget in history with next generation EU. Uh, for the first time, the European Union will be able to actually borrow money and uh, actually become some sort of uh, autonomous when, uh, with regards to the budget. Um, do you think that this is a one-time special occasion or is it something that brings us into a deeper European integration in the future? First of all, let me say that uh, in the very beginning of the outbreak of the pandemic, the European Union was not really prepared. So I would like to say one, one slept in Brussels, first of all. And the nation states, the so-called member states, they took their chance, first of all, in order to close the borders, to go unilaterally um, in the forefront. But then, March, April, this changed and the Commission, um, under the leadership of Ursula von der Leyen, took more and more the lead. And also we could realize when we observed these processes that the member states realized that without a coordinated cooperation they would not have a real success in order to overcome the problems. So it was, I think, uh, a very important attempt made by Emmanuel Macron, uh, Angela Merkel and Ursula von der Leyen. It's a kind of triangle, Paris, Brussels and Berlin, to take the initiative. And Ursula von der Leyen talked about a new Marshall Plan for Europe, not really referring to the US-European recovery program 
late 40s, early 50s at this time. Especially to your question, I think, yes, it is a change because we could observe the combination uh, between the uh, mehrjähriger Finanzrahmen der Europäischen Union, so the multi-annual financial framework of the European Union, connected with the recovery program. And you mentioned it um, fully uh, correctly that uh, for the first time the European Union can borrow money and this would mean also a change in the financial architecture of the European Union. But the question is, can we really observe institutional changes? And I doubt. I doubt. Um, on the one hand, yes, it's a change. That means more um, room of maneuver for the European Union. But in close cooperation with the heads of states and governments, and you, you, you very well know they need the green light by Paris, by Berlin, as it was in history. We should not uh, forget that the foundation of the European coal and steel community was a foundation by nation states, by member states, and they define themselves as the masters of the treaties. So actually, I cannot see a real strong institutional change. If we compare that scenario with the American Marshall Plan, you know, we had the Congress in Washington, we had special agencies in the receiving countries of the Marshall Funds, so we had so-called um, economic agencies managing the distribution of the Marshall Fund um, means in the different European member states. I don't think that this for Italy or for Hungary, uh, where, let's say, special EU agencies are situated in Rome, in Budapest, in order to look in which direction uh, will the money um, go. So that's one thing. I do not see also a, a real strengthening of the European Parliament. It was outside when the decision were made which um, means could be uh, found for overcoming the pandemic. The European Parliament also uh, blamed the Commission for not producing much more transparency concerning the uh, corona policy. So yes and no. Thank you very much. So you see that the power will still be remaining with the member states. Now you have mentioned that um, there is this triangle that consists of the Commission, Paris and Berlin. We are also working here a lot on Central and Eastern Europe. So uh, my next question would be, um, do you see a shift in the power relations where the countries of Central and Eastern Europe can potentially build a stronger um, connection and also play a bigger role in the future of uh, European integration, especially now that we see that there are challenges where the European Commission tries to play a bigger role and uh, tries to use the funds that they have in order to make countries adhere to the very core values of the European Union. I think it's a further challenge for growing much more together concerning the earlier former candidate and then member states and the older ones, the so-called founding member states. Corona puts them more together because Hungary, Poland, Slovakia, the Czech Republic were also very dependent on support, on help in order to overcome the pandemic. And it's interesting to see what you said, 
that the Commission tried to combine the permission for you know, delivering these means with the aspects of the values of the European Union. And it's interesting that the European Parliament also took the offensive in order to, to blame the Commission not to be strong enough and um, hard enough in order to put pressure on the governments in Poland, in Hungary, and uh, the European Parliament asked also the European Court of Justice, situated in Luxembourg, uh, in order to put also pressure on the Commission to be more eager, claiming the, um, the commitment to the European values. So I think it's a chance, it's a possibility, and Hungary, Poland and other ones are forced to think about a stronger commitment to European right, to law and to the values. When we talk about further integration, of course, there is uh, now, after this first couple of waves of the pandemic, more of a focus on what actually happens with Brexit. We can see now clearly what the results are. It has been a huge shock to the system. Basically, the method Monet was uh, buried with it because now this ever closer union for the first time in history um, has an alternative route and uh, the uh, people in uh, the United Kingdom chose this route. There will be certain ramifications out uh, of this, certainly. Um, we can see right now that there is some sort of positive aspect in the sense that this catastrophe leads to a higher opinion in the member states about European integration, but will this be a lasting effect or do you see as soon as, as all these post-pandemic recovery also uh, happens in Great Britain that this positive spin that we see at the moment could uh, turn further into disintegration? First of all, we talked uh, before this new question about the values and I have to say as a historian, uh, Europe never was a totally homogene you know, space region of uh, the same values. We have very different, you know, uh, cultural identities and national identities and also different approaches by the candidate member states to the European Union, also the older member states. And if you take the UK example and the, and the Brexit decision of 2016, we have to say that it was not a unique uh, opinion. So uh, UK was and is divided up to that day. So you know well that uh, the Scottish people and the Northern, Iron, Nor Northern Irish people voted for Remain. And it was Wales and England more or less for the Brexit. We have to, to keep in mind the history that UK was a latecomer, being member uh, in 1973 at a time where we had an economic crisis in the 70s. The experience were not so good as those of the founding member states in the 50s when, you know, we had the economic miracle in, in Europe. And we have also to say that um, we have different histories of opting outs by the UK, starting with the fees, you know, the member fees, starting with the commitment to the European currency system and, 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 and. And it's also interesting to see that uh, long before, a decade before the Brexit referendum took place, the Tories decided to step out of the common faction of the European Parliament with the European People's Party and the European Democrats. So the effect was, interestingly enough, that um, a surprise 
Brussels, you remember well, the Commission's president at that time, Jean-Claude Juncker, didn't expect that outcome. I think no real historical awareness was there about the different ambivalent uh, relationship between the UK and the officials, diplomats and politicians towards the European Union process. So one was very shocked. But as an historian at that time, I was not so shocked. I, I foresaw a very much divided outcome. The effect is, the first weeks after the referendum, I got the impression that the, the, the populist parties in Europe tried to exploit that result for their own purposes. But they realized after a few months that is, it is very counterproductive to talk about this Brexit as a chance for the Netherlands, for Austria, for example, because the negative effects became obvious. So split, a split, a strong divide of the notion of the nation itself, polarization between the different parties and in the parties themselves. So, and it was also clear that the outcome would be a lose-lose situation for both, for all sides. So I think, actually, I would argue that the Brexit is a good example for a kind of integration pedagogics to educate uh, those uh, politicians uh, toying, playing with the idea of stepping out, like the AfD in Germany, who actually also was again for uh, a new European Union or leaving the European Union, leaving the euro, but it's not the majority position. The majority of the European populations, I think, did um, learn their lesson that it would be more negative, counterproductive to leave the European Union and uh, they much more esteem this common cooperation and this, uh, let's say, union of also different interests, but of negotiating, of compromising and in the end also to come to severe solutions. When we look at the opinion polls, we also see that, of course, uh, we have the, the highest opinion rates positively towards the European integration since maybe the mid-80s. But at the same time, more than 50% of the people think that the development that Brussels has taken goes into a wrong direction. So we had historically deepening and widening go hand in hand. Then at a certain point, we decoupled that. At the latest, after the enlargement with Bulgaria Romania, we said, okay, we need internal consolidation uh, before we can have an enlargement. Now we had a decrease of members, uh, but there are still the countries of the Western Balkans who have the promise that they can join in the near future. Do you see that this could be um, an additional point in the, as you mentioned, enlargement uh, integration pedagogics that we integrate these countries, fulfill these promises that were given 18 years ago that they can become a member if they fulfill the criteria? Or do you also see that this internal consolidation needs to go first before we can enlarge? If you look back to history, uh, take, for example, Jacques Delors as a commission president, he decided not to be a further candidate after 1995 because he feared with three new member states, Sweden, Finland, Austria, that it is too much for him and a big task to, full, to be fulfilled. That's interesting. It was long before the so-called Eastern enlargement took place. Let me come back to the, to the last question when you are referring to the uh, method of Jean Monnet. I think this method of Jean Monnet is not out forever. It sometimes also played a role. Think about 
the decision by Macron and Merkel to put forward the idea of Ursula von der Leyen as a new president for the Commission. The European Parliament could not uh, agree on Manfred Weber, who was the winner of the election, and this was used as a chance for Macron and Merkel to decide, okay, if you cannot decide, if you are not ready to present a candidate who was the winner of the elections, then we, behind the doors, we decide Ursula von der Leyen will be the new president of the commission. So you see the, the method Monet, you, we have to talk about what exactly is the method of Monet. There are different uh, interpretations by scientists, political scientists and historians. I think one core element of the method of Monet is to make elite decisions and to leave out, you know, votes by the people, referenda, or decision-making by the parliament. He was not in favor of a parliament when founding the European Coal and Steel Community. The, 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 the idea was to have a common assembly, not parliament. So that's the one thing. I think the priority uh, for deepening is clearly to be observed after the, Eastern, the so-called Eastern enlargement, when we had the foundation of the so-called European neighborhood policy. This was a clear concept developed at that time by Günther Verheugen as a commissioner for enlargement. And it was, you know more reluctant, more hesitant concerning further, bigger enlargements. So what is very clear that the so-called Western Balkans as a strategic goal by the Commission, but also here we have different positions by the member states. France is not very much in favor for having a, let's say, bigger Western Balkans enlargement. The priority actually is more Serbia, Macedonia, for example. And this, I think, is the way we can observe the further development. So this will be first-hand elite decisions to compromise with the French in order to go cautiously, step by step, one and then the other one. And I think not a group of member states, of new member states. So it's, it's going step by step, this one, the next one. But it's, it's difficult because, you know, you need also the acceptance by the populations. Um, domestic policy plays a, a big role. You know, the, the populist parties are much more stronger now uh, in the 20s of our 21st century than in the 80s and the 90s. They are sometimes part of the governments. They are putting pressure on the governing parties or the leading parties in a government. So it's much more difficult, and I think... We will um, have to wait and see and mo put more the focus on deepening than on enlargement. But on the other hand, the candidate member states cannot wait for such a long time, um, like in the years from 1989 to 2004, 15 years, you know, it's a very long time. And NATO, we didn't mention NATO, will be also a very interesting substitute as a kind of assistance, uh, a kind of flanking policy to think about what about Serbia and NATO. This is a crucial decision also in order to, to prevent a stronger Chinese influence on all these countries. You know, we have this 16 plus 1 or 17 plus 1 constellation that China is, I think, the real challenge for the European Union of today. Professor Gila, I think we could fill at least 10 more episodes with topics. Um, it was a brilliant insight and a brilliant start of our uh, next uh, couple of, of episodes, speaking of which we will feature actually on the candidate country Serbia that you have mentioned in our next episode and talk about challenges of vac vaccination policies and geopolitical 
uh, impacts. Thank you very much for being with us today, Professor Gila. At the end, I want to ask you to recommend a piece of art or piece of literature to our audience to bring the reflection that we had today a little bit further. I often think about the, the paintings of Peter Bruegel and the building of the Tower of Babel. Uh, that's a challenge and we have to be fully aware that we have very different cultures, identities, languages. The European Union's history should not end with that paintings and uh, with this uh, idea connected with that, uh, with that picture by Bruegel, but we should be aware that Europe has to be seen from its many differences and we have to approach from these existences of differences of cultures and ideas but in the end that the, that's the hope that the common law it's a law community and connected with the law community also with values is the hope for compromising and further cooperation thank you very much again This was a fantastic episode on uh, an overview of the history of European integration combined with current challenges resulting from the pandemic. We very much appreciate that you took the time to talk with us today. Thank you very much. Thank you. It was my pleasure. So you enjoyed this podcast? Then tune into another CEE episode and subscribe to the IDM podcast series on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Acast, or elsewhere you get your podcast. And also have a look at the rest of our work on our website www.idm.at. For any feedback or podcast collaboration, feel free to contact me at e.hontoberry at idm.at. The email is in the description below. This was CEE, Central Europe Explained, a podcast series produced by the Institute for the Danube Region and Central Europe, powered by Erste Group. With the ongoing participation of Daniela Paiden, Marvin Atalik, Daniel Martinek and Sebastian Schaeffer. Production and editing, Emma Hunterberry. Proofreading, Jack Gill. IDM Podcast. Institut für den Donauraum und Mitteleuropa. Institut für den Danube Region und Central Europe. European Perspectives. Regional Actions. Cooperation and Expertise since 1953.